0: Well, good morning. Truly really have been blessed to be here. And uh, <clears throat> for the youth for sharing those verses, that was a rich blessing. And uh, I was thinking as you we were sharing, it's like if you could just take those words that are in your mind that you took time to memorize and put all those words in your heart and live it out, be a blessing of a life, wouldn't it? All right. All um, right. Maybe we could start with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we just come before your throne this morning and just bow our hearts and say, Lord God, would you feed us and teach us today? Father, thank you for everything we've heard so far. Help us, Lord, to be able to take these things and put them into practice in our lives. That we can give you our all to serve you on this earth with everything we have. And do it all in your name for your glory. Father, as you break the bread of life, now look into your word. Would you please feed us? Help us to grow. Lord, to learn more about you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to look at a story in 2 Kings this morning. A story that's always intrigued me through the years. 2 Kings chapter 5. But first, I just want to ask a question. Um... Every day we make decisions. question to have is, what motivates your decisions? Have you ever analyzed that? What makes me think what I think and do what I do? You know, inside the courtroom of your heart, what laws do you use to finalize the decisions you make? What mechanisms do you have that control what you do and your intents? You know, we make minor decisions all the time, every day. And yet those minor decisions, you know, come day by day and then... At times in our lives, we have to make bigger decisions and some major decisions, and it seems like the older we get, the decisions get even bigger, don't they? But, you know, it's all those little minor decisions that we make that begin to pave the way for how you respond to the bigger decisions in life when those come up. Our major decisions are a product of all of our minor decisions. So what motivates your decisions that you do? The title of the message this morning is God's Terms or Ours. So the decisions, decisions that you make, do you make them on God's terms or yours? Are you taking the principle of God and embracing them as we do things? You know, as we think, say, well, what does God think about this? What verses in the Bible do I have that I can cling to to help me with these decisions? Are we doing that or are we taking a penknife and simply removing some of the spots that don't quite fit? Some of the spots that we might not want to go by, we just ignore them over something. If I could give you an answer to say, here's something that you can use to make, help make every decision in your life, we'd all want that, wouldn't we? And yet, we have this right here. One thing I've learned, and still learning, and I have a long way to go, is that everything you are confronted with in this world, you have an answer right here. You just need to look for it. And so often, while we're trying to figure things out, this gets put on the side. Instead of putting the front of our heart and our mind. And we make decisions and we don't run to the word of God and say, well, what are God's principles? You know, every answer is not in here. We can't come up with ask a question and go through and uh, hit the search bar. And then it comes up and says, "Okay, here's the answer right here. It doesn't work that way. But the principles in the word of God cover everything in your life. If you don't believe that, one day, every one of us and you Will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will. And at that moment, we'll find out how important these words are to our life right now. God's ways are always right and perfect. God does nothing wrong. God makes no mistakes. Everything God does, even if we can't see it God's way, is perfect. But our ways may not be. One want to look at the story in Second Kings uh, chapter 5. And uh, It's a little bit to read, but I want to read through this and then take a look in here. It says, Now Naaman, the captain of the hosts of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, and honorable because by him the Lord was given deliverance unto Syria. He also was a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and bought away captive out of the land of Israel, a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God, my lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his lord, saying, Thus and thus saith the maid that is, in the land of is- that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go to go, and I will send thee a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. And he bought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now. When the letter is come unto thee, behold, I will have therewith sent name and my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass, when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore, consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh quarrel against me. And it was so, when Elijah, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses, and with his chariot, and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought, he will surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in his rage. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee to do something great, wouldn't thou not have done it? How much rather then, when he saith to thee, wash and be clean. Then he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh again came came like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned unto the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him. He said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, Take a blessing of thy servant. But he said, As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servants two mules, burden over the earth? For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offerings nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. In this thing the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master goeth into the house of Remion, to worship there that he leaneth on my hand and I bow myself in the house of Rimeon when I bow myself to the house of Rimeon Lord and pardon thy servant this thing and he sent it to him go in peace so he departed a little way I'll stop there for a moment now the first verse was the biggest challenge to me I spent more time looking at verse one than any other verse in this whole text because I didn't understand exactly what was going on here. We have Naaman. Now, he's the captain of the um, king of Syria. He's a man of valor. He's one of the great men, one of his warriors. Okay, he's an honorable man. He's well respected. But it says in here that one of the reasons why he was so honorable is because by him the Lord gave deliverance in Syria. That's the big L. And I looked at that over and over and I even did some research and many I don't usually research out a lot of commentaries or things like that, but as I looked into this different places, a lot skipped right over this part. And I found a couple that did address it, at least where I looked. And it's odd. Why would God turn around and bless Syria? give him a victory when aren't they enemies of the Israelites? Isn't their rivals here? Conflicts? David went up against Syria. Syria many times went over and got together with other groups and fought against Israel. And yet it says here that he was honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance. Doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but that's what happened. Now, God's ways are always higher than ours. And God does a lot of things that we simply don't understand. And this is one of them, but I want to come back to this point in just a little bit here. Go on a little bit further here. Now, Naaman was the commander of the Syrian army, well-respected, yet he had leprosy. And he longed and desired to get rid of this leprosy because as this leprosy developed, what was going to happen, he would have to be separated. He would no longer have his position. In his mind, he was going to lose everything. So he wanted a cure for this leprosy. He would be alienated from his people. But now notice that they had gone out with the little, i call it a crusade, over in Israel. And they bring back an Israelite woman that he took into his house and gave to his wife to use for a servant. Again, kind of a strange thing here. And the Lord gave deliverance in that battle. But, while this Syrian woman is in his home, obviously, they're speaking about his leprosy, how much he longed to be healed. And then one day, she makes this comment. You know, there's a prophet that's in Samaria. That if only you could get to him, his God could heal you. And he hears this comment. And he goes to king of Syria and he explains the situation to him and he says okay I'll let you go gave him a letter wrote it out saying what it's all about sent him on his way he departed he takes with him silver and pieces of gold and raiment maybe he should have taken some dark chocolate I don't know but he gets all these things and he goes over to the king of Israel okay which is probably Joram I think this point point. Uh, and Benadab would have been the king of Syria and he gets to the king and he shows him this letter, and the king reads the letter through and he gets all frustrated. He rents his clothes and he says, Why are you coming to me for healing of your leprosy, which can't be cured? There's nothing I can do for you. This obviously is an act of war. You're doing something to stir up strife and problems. And he's like, This isn't going to happen. Well, somehow, word gets back to Elisha. And Elisha hears this and he sends a text message back to the king of Israel. Okay, maybe a little bit different different technology. But he sends a message back to the king and he says, Why'd you rent your clothes? Why do you got the drumbeat of war going? Everything's okay. I've got it under control. Go ahead and let him come to me. So the king lets him come. So Naaman gets his chariots and all his big entourage heading over to Elijah's house. And he gets there and he gets to the door. And all of a sudden, a servant walks out of Elisha and says, Oh, by the way, yeah, he said, Go ahead and find the Jordan River and jump in there seven times, and you'll be healed. Now it's Naaman's turn to get mad. And he gets angry, and he's sitting there going, What do you mean jump in the Jordan River? I mean, there's other rivers over here in Israel that are a lot better than this one, and he gets real upset about it. But notice what he says. Look at verse 11. He was wroth, and he says, Behold, I thought. Behold, I thought. That's his downfall right there. You see, he had this vision in his mind. He says, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to go to this prophet's house and he's going to come out and he's going to uh, talk to me. And the glory of God's going to open up. This great big sky's going to open up and, and uh, it's going to strike over this whole place. And I'm going to be healed of my leprosy. You know, and he thought it was going to be a great day. So when he heard this, he was just mad. He couldn't handle it. He was trying to look at it from his way. He knew how it was going to work. How many of us have done that on something? You know, just how it's going to work out. got it all planned out and things change. Well, that's what happened here. He had this all worked out, what was going to happen. And he was going to go back to his king and to to his place. And he was going to be even more popular and more a hero than he was. And everything at that moment simply got deflated because it didn't go his way. He's getting ready to leave. And his servants get together and they're talking. And and possibly it says, my father, maybe his sons were there or something. It doesn't doesn't really say. So he turns away in a rage, and he's going, I'm not doing this. And the servants come up to him and say, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, Naaman, just listen for a minute. If he asked you to do something spectacular, some great thing, wouldn't you say okay? Well, yeah, that's what I came for. He said, so, we came all this way, why don't you go ahead and just give it a try? Just simply give it a try. So, he says, alright, so go to the Jordan River and Dips in the river, not once, but twice. He goes seven times. And when he comes up the seventh time, he realizes the leprosy has gone. He's healed. Just what he came for. His leprosy's all gone. His flesh, it says, looked like a little child. And he was clean. So he takes all his chariots and everything and goes back to Elijah's house. And this time he gets to meet with Elijah this time. Elijah comes out and his company gets there. And he walks out the door and notice verse 15, the very first words out of his mouth. He could have said, it's gone. No more leprosy. But the first words out of his mouth was, Behold, now I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Leprosy seemed to be pretty small at this point. Because his words were, I know now that these other gods don't exist. I'm not sure what he was thinking. If he just dismissed them completely or what, but he said there is no other God but the God in Israel. He's the only God. So why did God do it this way? What was God's reason in doing what he did? You know, Naaman had... Two things in his mind. Number one, he's gonna see this God from this prophet do a great thing. And something glorious is gonna happen to me. Remember, he probably liked was used to royal treatment, and this is gonna be the best thing he's seen. And number two, his leprosy is gonna be gone. That's what was on Naaman's mind. He went over there going, I heard there's a God in Israel that can heal me. I've got money. I've got garments. I've got a letter from the king. Everything's going to be great. In his mind, that's the way it was going to go. That's what he was looking for. He was looking for those two things to happen there. But see, God knew Naaman's heart. God knew exactly where Naaman was. And Naaman didn't need his leprosy to be healed. What Naaman needed was his proud, arrogant heart to be humbled before God himself. See the difference in the two ideas there? God had one plan. Naaman had another plan. Kind of like we heard this morning a lot about self during the uh, Bible study there. Okay? He had a selfish plan of the way he wanted things. And God had something else in mind. So why would God take a heathen to the Israelites, a commander of the rival army of Syria, give him victory in the battle, then turn around and And make him a mighty man of valor in his own country. Allow him to have leprosy. Allow him to take captive this Israelite woman back in his home to give to his wife to be a servant. Wasn't God supposed to bless the Israelites? At least that's what they thought. Wasn't God supposed to bless his people? You know, from our perspective, or at least mine, studying this, it made no sense. If I were to put all these pieces together, it didn't make sense. But look at verse 15, where he says, Behold, I know there's no other God in all the earth but Israel's God. There's no other God but yours. See how God works? If we were to write this story, if we could go back there, wouldn't we have done it differently? But he says, Behold, I know. The only God in the whole world is the God of the Israelites. Naaman was healed of his leprosy, but that's not the real point. That's not the point. You see, in God's economy, his leprosy leprosy was just simply a tool that God used to humble his heart. We wouldn't choose that. Well, maybe if we had a real enemy that we didn't like. We might do something like that. But God did that in love. He wasn't out to destroy Naaman in any way. That was just a tool that God used to humble Naaman's hearts. God used a bunch of odd circumstances to bring himself glory. Naaman's now in heaven. I believe. I have no doubt in my mind it doesn't go further than this, but... That Naaman would have a place in heaven. Look at verse 16. He acknowledges that there's only one God. Then he says, all right, Elisha, here you go. I'm begging you, take some of these gifts that I brought along. And Naaman says, no, I don't want any of them. And he urges him, He's like, no, come on, it's, you, can, you, you can take anything you want here. And he refuses. And he wouldn't take anything from him. Obviously, Elisha knew that you can't buy God's healing. You can't purchase something from the Lord. You don't show up at God's doorstep and say, Look, I need this done in my life. Here's a bunch of things. And money's not going to buy anything. God doesn't need that. And he wanted him to know that. And he also didn't want Naaman going back thinking that that was part of the deal. The only reason God did this was he had to give him something. Because think about what would have spread. You know, if you want God to do something, he will. But, you know, bring thing. God doesn't need anything. All God needs is for us to ask. So he refuses them. And he sends Him on his way. And then Naaman goes further. He says, you know what? I know you're the only God. He said, but I've got a problem. Well, let me back up. Got ahead of myself a little bit. And then he says about offering sacrifices. He used to offer them to whomever. He says, now, but I know. The only God worthy of a sacrifice is your God. And he makes the proclamation that that's the only God he would sacrifice to. But also he says, Naaman, I've got this problem. You see, when I go back home to my master, when I go back home to the king, I've got to go in the house of Rimeon and place of worship there, and I'm going to have to assist him and help him there and bow down in front of this thing. And uh, I don't know what to do about it. You see, his heart." He wasn't just accepting that part of it. It changed his life. Something is different in his life here. And he says, what do I do? Can I be forgiven of this? Can you take this away from me somehow? What do I do? And Elijah looks at him and he says, go in peace. You're okay. You can do that. He asks for forgiveness of for this thing. He says, i going to go bow down to a false god. But his heart wasn't there. He was just going to fulfill his obligation to his king. And Elijah said, go in peace. And he left. Pardoned from the sin. Originally, Naaman wanted things done his way, on his terms. And in a rage of anger, he almost left the country and cursed God. And went out of there. But then he humbled himself. It probably took a lot for him to do that. I don't know. I've seen many men be afraid to confess something just because of that pride element in the heart. But he humbled himself and did what made no sense. Jumping in that muddy river. Not once, but seven times. And he was healed of his leprosy. But even more so, he learned to love God. And he rejoiced. His sins were forgiven. His hope was now in the Lord God. Naaman decided to do things on God's terms. And he was blessed. You know... I think, not sure what word to use, but this bothered the Israelites. Because they had this notion, you read through the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, we're God's special people. You know, we're Hebrews, and God loves us. And God's heart was always, my love's for everybody in the world. That was his heart. And Naaman, was doing just what God wanted his people to do. He wanted them to bow down like this. He wanted this type of worship from the hearts. And the Israelites wanted their own little nation. But they didn't always do things the way God wanted. And it often bought them troubles. And it bought them struggles. And it caused a lot of problems and harms them over and over again. But God's heart is always to save mankind from their sin. Every nation, every tribe every kindred. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what race. It doesn't matter where. It doesn't matter how evil you are. God's heart is salvation for the entire world, for all of mankind. And the Israelites sometimes clung to this whole thing where God's special people and it did them harm because they'd start leaking away from things. But God's looking for anybody no matter where we're from to love and serve him. And that's what he's asking out of every one of us. Are we willing to lay our life down and give our whole life to God to serve him? We can do things God's way or we can do things our way. Our ways usually lead to destruction. If not immediately, somewhere down the road, our ways eventually lead to destruction. But God's ways will always lead to victory. One we'll look further into the story. Um, verse 20. Look at Gehazi's response to this whole thing. Gehazi was Elijah's servant. It says, But Gehazi, the servant of Elijah, the man of God, said, Behold, my master hath spared Naaman the Syrian in not receiving at his hand that which he bought. But as the Lord liveth, I will run after him and take somewhat of him. So Gehazi followed him after Naaman. And when Naaman saw him running after him, he lighted down from his chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master hath sent me, saying, Behold, now, even now there be come to me from Mount Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Give them, I pray thee, a talent of silver and two changes of garments. And Naaman said, Be content, take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and laid them upon two of his servants, and they bare them before him. And when he came to the tower, he took them from his hand, and bestowed them in his house, and he let the men go, and they departed. But he went in and stood before his master, and Elijah said unto him, Whence comest thou, Gehazi? And he said, Thy servant went no whither. And he said unto him, Went not mine heart with thee, when the man turned again from his chariot to meet thee? Is it time to receive money, and to receive gifts, and olive yards, and vineyards, and sheep, and oxen, and menservants, and maidservants? The leprosy, therefore, that Naaman shall cleave unto thee, and thy seed ever. And he went out from his presence as a leper, as white as snow. So Gehazi saw the um, the, the gold there, the money there, and the garments there, and he said, ah, "You know, I don't want that to go to waste. I want some of that." So he runs out after him, and I'm not sure what it liked watching him sail across the uh, field. They're running him after him, but Naaman sees him back there, and he stops. And he's like, yeah, everything's fine. And he said, but he makes up this story. He concocts this lie. And he says, yeah, there's two um, sons of the prophets, and they're here, and they need you know, a piece of silver and some clothes. So he says, go ahead. And he loads them up. And then he also has the servants bring it back for him. And they get back there, then the Gehazi takes them and he runs them into his house. And then it gets one step worse. He goes up to Elijah, and Elijah says, So, where have you been? Oh, I didn't go anywhere. It should have been a flag right there. But then Elijah says, Somehow I saw. You went over there and you took those garments, you took that money, and you bought it back. And he says, You know what? The leprosy that Naaman had, now you have. And he never got rid of it, he never got cured. instead of doing things on God's terms, decided, I'm going to do it on my terms. And it failed. I want to look over in Acts for a moment. Let's see where I should pick up here. This is the point where... Um, The disciples needed to pick some people for help. Um, I'm going to back up here a little bit and read this here. Chapter 6, verse 1. It says, just the apostles were choosing helpers. And it says, And in those days, when the number of disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily administration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples and said to them, Is it not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables? Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, that we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves over continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. And then it lists the others in there. It also says in seven, and the word of God increased, and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith, power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. So Stephen was a follower of God here. You could tell he had a great relationship with God, says he was full of faith. And he's doing his job. And one day he's into the uh, um, with the Pharisees, and he begins to you know, say things and teach and kind of jumping ahead and they get into a problem here, and then they bring them before the council. Um, and he goes through history with them. He's, he's speaking to them. He's teaching them. and He's preaching with them, and they're getting angry with them. And then uh, verse 54 says, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes. I'll stop there. Sorry about that. No. Um. Yeah, let me finish. I'm sorry. Um, and, cast, and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin on the charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, here's Stephen. He, he's just simply doing what he's supposed to do, speaking things of God, and it ends up where they pull him out of the city and they say, we're going to stone him. And as Stephen's standing there, he looks up and he says, I can see the glory of God. The heavens are open. And on top of that, he says, look, there's Jesus standing there. He wasn't sitting at his throne like we read. He's standing there looking down and the heavens are open and they get very more angry at him. Isn't that kind of what Naaman wanted to see. Didn't Naaman want to see that? There wasn't that kind of his vision? You know, as Stephen was there looking up into heaven and he saw the glory of Jesus Christ in his last moments in need. So I have a question. Why did Stephen see the glory of God in the sky? Naaman didn't. Why would God do it that way? It seems to me if I could have done this Stephen knew who God was. He loved God. He's like, when I die, I'm going home. Naaman didn't know this. It would have made more sense to me for God to do that to Naaman so that he could go back and say, you have no idea what this God's like over in Israel. I mean, this is amazing. But it didn't happen that way. Instead, he was told to jump in the Jordan River. Okay? Seems like somebody who's a non-believer would have needed that more. Why did God not heal Others of leprosy. There more lepers in the world. Why did Naaman have to dip seven times? If he had done four or five or six, he wouldn't have been healed. Why did God say seven? Isn't once humbling enough to jump in that river and say, okay, here I go, and come up, nothing happened. <laughs> okay, I tried again, you know. But seven times. Why did Achan commit the sin by stealing the garments and the gold? Why did Achan do that, and yet 36 people lost their lives? Why? Wouldn't it have made sense if God just judged Achan right there? Singled him out and said, Achan, you've done this, that's it. But instead, 36 others had to die. And it went through a long procedure before they finally came out where it was. Why did Paul, who was a Pharisee, Write two-thirds of the New Testament? Why didn't John write it? John loved Jesus. If you want to find John, go back where Jesus was and he was sitting right next to him, asking him questions, learning. Just look at the writings of John. He didn't just know what Jesus said. He knew what Jesus meant. He knew what Jesus thought. Why'd God do it that way? Why did Jesus come to this earth as an infant? Why didn't he come down to some great glorious kingdom and just show this is God, I'm here and show a different way how everybody can be saved, and made whole. Why did God do it that way? I mean, he came as a baby through a controversial birth and it was 33 years before he did one miracle. Why? I'd have done it differently. Why did one stone have to take down Goliath and not the whole army that was there? Just overpower them. doesn't make sense. An entire army against one guy. But God said, no, one stone from little boy is going to do it. Why is it some people can go out and have a head-on collision in a car wreck and walk away unharmed? Why does somebody else have the same wreck and not make it? Why didn't God heal Gehazi's leprosy? He never healed with that. And Gehazi made the choice to continue with God. He stayed with Elijah. It doesn't give a whole big door there of what happened, but he didn't give up on God apparently. So why didn't God heal him? Why was he more deserving than Naaman? Or I said that backwards maybe. Why is Naaman more deserving than Gehazi was of the healing? A lot of questions we can ask about the wise. Why is it one lady fell off a bridge one day 90 feet up? And walked away basically unharmed, a couple minor bruises. Somebody else fell two stories and lost their life. Why does that happen? There's a lot of questions that we can't answer. And you know, being in the prisons, a lot of this comes from us faced with tons of questions about why God. Over and over. Over and over. Why? Why this? Why that? But you see, God's ways are higher than ours. You know, God has no complete concept that we can follow. We can't put God in some way that we can understand the concept of how God works and say, okay, this is how it happens. It's impossible. You simply can't do it. You know, we as people, we want to figure things out. Okay? Especially men. We love to figure things out. All right? But in this world we do have a limited way that we can figure some things out, even though it goes way beyond there. But there's a lot of things that we can figure out and understand how it works. But simply God doesn't work that way. You know, we like to come to some clear conclusions on things. You know, the best way to do things. God's abilities are way beyond compare. There's nothing on this earth that we can compare God to, to how he works to anything else. But we can do that with the things that we have, the resources on this earth. God is mysterious and he's limitless. There's no bounds to what God can do. God has no bounds that he can be measured. He's infinite. There's nothing that we can do to kind of see where God begins or ends or his thought pattern goes or how he does stuff and why he does stuff. There's no way. You go into any story in the Bible and you find one way that God worked in somebody's life. And most of them aren't repeated again. You look, it's a different way. It's a different way. If we went through this room and everybody shared their salvation, the bottom end line is anybody in this room that's born again came to the cross of Jesus Christ and asked for forgiveness and got washed in the blood. But there's probably a different story to everybody how God got us there. Why isn't it the same way? Why can't we just come to do this, do this, do this, and then that's how God works? That'd be easy to figure out after a while, wouldn't it? Okay. But God's ways are limitless. His ways of humbling a man can't be counted. When you begin to try and figure out why, all those questions I asked, why God? How come? When we begin to try to figure out God and what makes him work and how he works or why he does what he does, Maybe this is a wrong statement to make, but you're on a path of failure. God doesn't work that way. God's looking for us to have faith, to trust him, regardless of how ridiculous or how wrong it looks. Look at the story of Naaman. In my mind, maybe you guys see differently. There's so much wrong in that story, but look how it ended up. I want to look over Job for just a couple minutes here. I won't get into the story of Job, although it's a great story. I often find myself looking back there at times and I'm trying to study out a subject. But Job 38. This is when all has gone on. If I could put it that way, they've had their conversations, you know, his three friends and everything there. And Job's made some comments. But what I want to point out here is this. In 38, okay, God challenges Job. Job did nothing wrong, but God challenges Job's thinking. He took Job further and says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is that that darkeneth the counsels of, I'm sorry, the counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man and I will demand of thee the answer. uh, I'm sorry. I will demand of thee and answer thou me. Wherefore was there when I laid the foundations of the earth? I declare if that has understanding. This earth has a foundation somewhere? I thought it kind of floated up in there. It says, who laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who can stretch a line upon it? You see, it wasn't haphazardly put up there. God had a plan of how he was going to do this. Whereupon are the foundations fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? Job, God continues to go on with question after question after question to Job. Um, he says knowest thou the ordinance of the heaven canst thou set up the dominion thereof in the earth canst thou lift up the voice to the clouds and the abundance of the waters that may cover thee canst thou send lightnings that may go and say unto thee here we are Over in verse forty. It says, Moreover, the Lord answered Job, Shall thou contendeth with the almighty and instruct him? Job oh, are you smarter than me? He that hath he that reproved God, let him answer it. Then Job answered and said, Behold, I am vile. Shall I answer thee? I will lay mine hand upon my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer yea twice, I will proceed no further. Then the Lord, then answered the Lord unto Job out of the world and said, Gird thy loins like a man, I demand thee and declare unto thee, Wilt thou also disannul my judgments? Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? Hath thou an arm like God? Or canst thou thunder with a voice like him? Deck thyself with majesty and excellency and array thyself in glory and beauty? And then in 42, then Job answered the Lord and he says, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is thee that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered that I understood not things too wonderful me, which I knew not. Job, when God began to ask him questions, simply saw God's just amazing. I have nothing to say. In closing, God never asks us to figure him out. I've never come across one verse or anything that says, God says, go ahead and completely figure out who I am. Now, to bounce that out, God does ask us to learn of him, to learn his ways. God asks us by faith to surrender your will to him, to trust in him completely, like finally Naaman did. To never question his ways or his integrity, but to follow by faith. I heard a story. I think it came out of Mars mirror. But there was a man many years ago that was going to be burned to the stake. And the night before that, they put him in prison. He was in this cold stone cell. The only thing he had in that room was one candle. And as he sat there crying out to God that night, he looked at that candle and he took out his finger and he stuck it in the candle and he tried to see how long he could hold it there to see what it was going to be like. And he couldn't take the pain very quickly. He yanked his hand back. And he said, God, I can't do this. And God answered him and says, I didn't give you the grace for that, but I will give you the grace for tomorrow. Why is it that one believer in Christ Jesus can be burned at the stake and another one be at home at peace with his family and die, and both end up to be in the presence of the Lord. It's not our place to figure these things out but it's our place to do things God's way. We can do things God's way or we can do things our way. So back to the question what motivates your decisions? In the courtroom of your heart do you do things on God's terms or on your terms? Who's on the throne of your heart? We all know the song. It says, All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him and in His presence daily live. Worldly pleasures all forsaken. Did you catch that one? This is America. Worldly pleasures all forsaken. Humbly at His feet I bow. Is that our testimony this morning? God bless. Thank you.